You know, there have been many books throughout uh, Christian literature that help us uh, understand better the Christian life. And sometimes the, uh, it's told in an allegory, a story that helps us understand bigger points that the Scripture makes about the Christian life. Uh, one very famous book uh, in this genre, an older book, is called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And it helps uh, follow the life of someone named Christian. And you see all of the travails he goes through in the Christian life on the way to the heavenly city. Perhaps another series of books you might be more familiar with are the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And in one of those books, uh, the one entitled Prince Caspian, we have a scene there that I want to share with you. Lucy, one of the children, she catches sight of the lion Aslan. And if you're familiar with the books, you know that Aslan is a picture. He points to Christ. And so there's a scene in Prince Caspian where Lucy sees Aspen. He's shining white. He's looking very large in the moonlight. And so in a burst of emotion, Lucy runs to Aslan, the lion, and she buries her face in his silky mane, and she just gets very close. And he lays on the ground, and they're very close together in what is to picture the intimacy that a Christian is to have with Christ, that deep fellowship that a believer is supposed to have with the Savior. And as they're looking at one another, Aslan says to her, Welcome, child. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. She thinks he's grown since the last time she saw him. And uh, he says, that is because you are older, little one. And so she asks, not because you are? And he says, no, I am not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. That's my prayer with this series for those of us who have walked with the Lord, some of you for many, many years, that even as time passes, the Lord will be bigger in our eyes. We will find Him more glorious, more beautiful than He has been even up to this point in our Christian life. That is my prayer with this series. And so we begin today in Hebrews chapter 1, asking the question, who is Jesus? Is Christ God's final word? So if you're able and willing, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, You have spoken, so may we listen. Our gracious, speaking God, You have spoken by Your Son, may we listen now to Your Son. Oh, holy God, Your Son is more excellent than all. May we love Your Son above all today. It's in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. The author of Hebrews begins this masterpiece sermon with a prelude of praise to God's Son. But the earliest strains of this prelude emphasize the broader idea of God's revelation. God has spoken. He says there in verse 1, you can put it up on the screen, long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Now let's not run too fast past this glorious reality. God has spoken. God has revealed Himself. God freely chose to make Himself known to us. If He had not revealed Himself to us, if He had not disclosed Himself to us, then we would not know who God is. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the heavens do not declare the goodness of God. The galaxies declare the glory of God, but the galaxies do not declare the grace of God. The luminaries that shine in the heavens declare the glory of God, but they do not reveal the love and the salvation of God. No, for that, God must reveal Himself. God must speak to us. Any fair person who considers the beauty of creation, the intricate details of earth around us, they must acknowledge a divine design. They must recognize and acknowledge that there is a Creator, but we cannot know that Creator. We cannot understand that Designer unless He reveals Himself to us. But here's the good news. God has spoken. God has revealed Himself to us. We can know God because He wants us to know Him. Therefore, God has spoken. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Isn't that a gift of grace? Our forefathers, our ancestors, they did not have to wonder what God was thinking because He spoke. He spoke in a variety of ways. He spoke at a variety of times. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve and God spoke to them. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. God spoke to Joseph in a dream. God spoke through signs and wonders in all sorts of a variety of ways. Perhaps the most common way that we think of God speaking in the Old Testament is when God would speak through a prophet. And so you'd have someone like Jeremiah who declared, the word of the Lord came to me. Or you had other prophets like Zechariah, Micah, Nahum, and they would just stand flat-footed before a crowd and say, thus saith the Lord. God has spoken. What a gracious gift that God has spoken our forefathers. Long ago, in ages past, God spoke through His prophets. What an incalculable blessing that is. God spoke in many times and in many ways from Genesis to Malachi. We have the very words of God. God spoke through His prophets. He spoke perfectly through His prophets. God spoke accurately through His prophets, but God did not speak completely through His prophets. Are you following me? God did not say everything that He had to say when He spoke through the prophets. The prophets understood this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 tells us, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets themselves understood that God was not finished speaking when He spoke to them. They knew that God spoke clearly, but incompletely. They knew that God's revelation was progressive. That means that it builds upon itself. The promises became clearer as time passed. The promises of Genesis were coming more fully into view by the end of the book of Malachi, but everything was not completely clear even then. They were looking. They were searching. They wanted to understand who these prophecies were pointing to. 
So there's the question. Who can perfectly proclaim God's Word? Who could perfectly represent the message of God? God Himself. We read again verse 1 and we continue into verse 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Oh, how marvelous! In former days, God spoke in many times and in many ways, but in these last days, He has spoken in one way. In former days, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, God has spoken to us. In the former days, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. You see, in the fullness of time, the voice of God narrowed from a multiplicity of messengers down to one singular messenger, the Son of God Himself. It's a wonderful thing to hear a multitude of prophets speak on behalf of their God. But it's a far greater thing to hear the Son speak on behalf of the Father. The relationship is far more intimate between the Father and the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, but the Son never had to say, the Word of the Lord came to me. The Son never had to say, thus saith the Lord. The Son simply opened His mouth and preached with full authority the authority of the Father. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in one who is by His very nature and His character a Son. Christ is God's final word. Through not only what Jesus said, but what He did and who He was by the life, the work, the person of Jesus Christ, that is God's complete and final word. What more can He say? God has spoken to us through His Son. When we look at the New Testament, <clears throat> the Gospels tell us of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come to the book of Acts, we have the Spirit-filled preaching of the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come to the epistles, the, the letters of the New Testament, just like the book of Hebrews, when we come to these parts of the New Testament, they explain the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come to the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as two of our Sunday school classes are studying right now, when we come to that book, it tells us that our King, Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord, is coming again. It's all about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God's final Word. Sorry, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, but God isn't speaking to us through you. He has spoken to us through His Son. Sorry, Muhammad and your Koran, but God isn't speaking to us through you. He has spoken to us by His Son. Sorry, Mary Baker Eddy and your books of Christian science, but God is not speaking to us through you. He has spoken to us by His Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. That's the thrust of this paragraph. That's the big idea. If you want to make an outline of this passage, here's the one big point that the author of Hebrews wants you to know. God has spoken to us by His Son. But He's not done. 
The author's not done. He points out that God has spoken to us by His Son, but then he gives us seven phrases, seven descriptions, seven things that make the Son far superior to the prophets, far superior to the angels, far superior to everyone else. My professor in school, he liked to point at these and call them the seven wonders of Jesus, the same way that we would think about the seven ancient wonders of the world. I like that, but I also like the way that Kent Hughes, another pastor, puts it. He writes this, Through these magnificent words, the church is brought face to face with the God who speaks, the eloquence of God. God spoke in the past, and He speaks in the present in His Son. And this eloquence, the ultimate eloquence of the final word in God's Son, would bring them comfort in the midst of life's troubles. Could any of you use comfort in the midst of life's troubles? For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to examine these seven glorious truths, the sevenfold eloquence of God's final word. Who is Jesus? Well, first of all, He's the heir of all things. We stay right here in verse 2. He's the heir of all things. What is an heir? He's the legal descendant of someone. We know that. And we normally think of an heir, uh, we think of them coming into their work after the death of someone. But the status of being an heir is bestowed during life. You name your heir while you're living. And gifts can be given to, to the heir even during life. It doesn't require death necessarily. I point that out because some people who are skeptical of the Scriptures, they want to come to this and say, well, if Christ is the heir, then that means God must be dead. But of course we know that that is ludicrous. So God has determined that the Son will inherit all things belonging to the Father. Well, what does the Father own? Absolutely everything. This is my Father's world. He owns it all, and He has given it all to the Son. Remember Matthew 28, verse 18? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. All that is the Father's is also the Son's. God would only bless the Son in this way. He did not make one of the prophets His heir. <clears throat> he did not make one of the angels His heir. He did not make anyone else His heir. But the Son, whom God has spoken by, He is the heir of all things. But do you remember that glorious truth of Romans chapter 8? Not only is Christ the heir of all things, but all of us who have been adopted into the family of God by the work of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of God, and therefore we are joint heirs with Jesus. Everything that Jesus owns, He says He's going to share with us. He owns it all, yet He has made possible, He has welcomed us into the family, not begrudgingly, not being stingy, but He has said, I freely give it all to my brothers and sisters. He has brought us into the family of God. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but we stay here in verse 2, He is the creator of all things. Not only is Jesus, as God's eloquent final word, the heir of all things, but He's the creator of all things. So look again at verse 2, through whom He created the world. You see, Jesus is the inheritor, the heir of all things, and He's the creator of all things. Now when we think about creation, we often think back to Genesis 
chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that verse, and often our conception of creation stops right there. But we know that the whole Bible has a whole lot to say about creation. We notice, even when we keep reading there, in Genesis chapter 1, that the Spirit of God was at work, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God spoke. God's Word was active in creation in Genesis 1. And who is the Word? It's Jesus Himself, the living Word, the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 3 makes this clear. It says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And if that's not enough to overload our minds, know this. That the word used here for world, here in verse 2, it's not referring just to our little planet and our little solar system. It's the idea of the entire universe as we know it. The creator of the ages. Everything that is knowable, everything that is discoverable, Jesus is the one who created it. He is the creator of all things. He is the beginning. He is the inheritor, the heir of all things. He is the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Son, the Son that God has spoken to us by. The Son created it all, and the Son inherits it all. Isn't Jesus amazing? Well, so far we've seen Jesus' relationship to the created order. He is the Creator and the Heir, but now we turn to Jesus' relationship with God. The third glorious reality about God's final word, look at verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the full and perfect expression of God. The Bible teaches that no one can see God and live, but yet God has expressed Himself to us in Jesus. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man, yet He came to us in a body. God the Son took on human flesh and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. God has shown Himself to us in Jesus. We cannot fully see the glory of God, but what we can see of God's glory, we see that in Jesus Christ. When we think about God, the essence of God, the nature of God, the, the characteristics of God, all of these things are spiritual. They are intangible. We can't touch these things. We can't see these things. But God has given us just a small glimpse, a small manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was transfigured in Mark chapter 9? And there upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John got to see just a small glimpse of the glory of God. Now why can we see the glory of God in Jesus? Because Jesus is God. He is the same divine nature. To put it simply, He's the same stuff. Jesus is the same stuff as God is. Whatever God the Father is, so is God the Son. You know, Christians are often known for our debates over Scripture. 
the earliest Christians were debating about Scripture even while the Scriptures were still being written. You can read about that in the book of Acts. But in the first several centuries of the church, most of the debates over the Bible, the theological debates, were about Jesus. What is He like? What is His person like? What is His nature like? Is He the same stuff? Is He the same substance as God? Or is Jesus created and somehow lesser than God? Have you ever thought about that? How would you answer that question? Well, in the early 300s, there was a man named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus, because He was the Son of God, had to have been created by God, and therefore He was not the same substance, He was not the same stuff, and therefore Jesus was less than God. Now I hope you automatically hear the problem with that. But there in the early centuries of the church, the Christians had to wrestle with the Scriptures. They had to understand what is the Bible teaching us here. And so this heresy of Arianism, it became so influential that the churches of that day had to get together to have a meeting. They had to get together to have a council. They had to get together to have the Scriptures to try to understand what is the answer to this question. Is Jesus the same stuff, the same substance? Is He fully equal with God? So in that day, many Christian leaders from all around that part of the world, they came together for what we call the Council of Nicaea. You can think of it as a very, very early Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, Not quite the same, but you get the idea. They debated these things. And they debated, and things got heated. And the story even goes, we can't necessarily prove this, but there's a legend that there was one of the early church fathers, a man named St. Nicholas. Yes, that same St. Nicholas. The story goes that jolly old St. Nicholas got so mad at the heretic Arius that he punched him right in the face. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. It should be true if it's not. But here's what came out of that church council. When all the debating and all the fighting was done, they came out with a statement of faith that we call the Nicene Creed. And here's what part of the creed states. It says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And all through Him all things were made. <clears throat> and that's been the confession, the statement of faith of the Orthodox Church, of all faithful believers ever since that day. And I tell you all of that to help you understand two things. One, this is how Christians wrestle with the Scriptures. This is how we answer these questions. We come to God's Word and we try to understand what God is saying. But one of the key passages of Scripture that these Christians used to help them come to this conclusion was right here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You see, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The Son is God. Our eloquent God. He has spoken through the Son in even more wonderful ways. You see, Jesus is also the exact imprint of God's nature. Keep looking there in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Now, if you took the right metal tool that had a design on the end of it and you pressed it firmly into a piece of metal, you would have the exact imprint of the nature of that design pressed 
into metal. If you took a red-hot cattle brand and you pressed it into the hide of a black Angus calf, you would have the exact imprint of the nature of that brand right there in the hide of that calf. When we look at Christ, we see the exact imprint, the perfect image of the nature of God. When we look to see God, we see Jesus. That's why Jesus could say in John 12, 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Just a few pages later in John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, Paul says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to see the Father, look at the Son. Quoting Ken Hughes once again, Jesus is a superior revelation of God. When we see Him, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how He thinks. We know how He talks. We know how He relates to people. God has spoken in His Son. It is His final communication, His final word, His consummate eloquence. Oh, the superiority of the Son. How does the Son relate to the Father? He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. Well, how does the Son relate to the creation? He created all things. He's heir of all things. But the fifth stanza in this sevenfold hymn of praise to the Son says, He also upholds all things. We stay here in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus is not only the beginning of all things as Creator. He's not only the end of all things as the heir, but He's also the middle of all things as sustainer. He holds all things together. Did you lose any sleep last night wondering if the sun would come up this morning? Did any of you get up early enough to help flip the switch to make sure that the sun rose right on time? Of course not. We don't worry about whether the sun is going to rise each day, or to be more precise, we don't worry about the pos positional rotation of the earth on its axis to make sure that the sun shines the right amount of time on the earth and we don't all burn up and all the scientific language there. So we just say the sun rises. None of us lost any sleep worrying about whether the sun would rise. We have confidence that just like every day before, it will happen. We take it for granted. We think it's just going to happen on its own, but it happens because Jesus is holding all things together. There's enough happening right here on this earth to keep us in awe of what Jesus is doing. But when we broaden our horizon, we are flabbergasted at all that the Son is doing as He upholds the universe. The physicist Stephen Hawking once wrote, We know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Now folks, that was written over two decades ago. How much more can we know about the universe, this galaxy that we call home? And who is holding it all together? What keeps every galaxy in its place? What keeps the sun and the moon and the stars and their courses above? 
It is the faithful Son who upholds all things by the Word of His power. How did Christ create all things? By the Word of His power. How does Christ sustain all things? By the Word of His power. And one day, when Christ returns, and when Christ brings all things to an end, how will He do it? By the Word of His power. Oh, praise the Son! By the way, if Jesus Christ holds the entire universe in its place, do you really think that your life is too much for Him to handle? The things that keep you up at night, the things that cause you to lose sleep, the things that worry you, do you really think those are too big for our God to handle? He is able to uphold your life in the same way that He upholds all things. Well, the sixth stanza in this hallelujah chorus of praise to the Son. What's the next phrase there in verse 3? After making purifications for sins. Now wait a minute. When did sin come into the picture? Everything has been so glorious. We've been thinking about the Son's relationship to the Father and the Son's relationship uh, with creation, but creation rebelled. The very first man and woman made in the image of God, placed in the perfect environment, walking in perfect fellowship with God, they sinned. They committed treason. They had every reason to succeed, but they failed. They disobeyed their Creator. They sinned against God, and so has every single person since then. We are all ruined sinners. But the Son made purification for sins. He, as the perfect priest of God, gave the perfect sacrifice on the cross. He died in your place, and you can be forgiven of your sins today by repenting of your self-righteousness, by turning away from your attempts to save yourself and to throw yourself upon the mercy of the Son today because He's made purification for your sins. Hallelujah! What a Savior! That's not all that the Son has done. The seventh reason we should praise Jesus, the climax of this hymn here at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. What an achievement. He sat down at the right hand of God Himself, the Majesty on high. The author of Hebrews reminds us later in this book that normal priests had to stand, 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 day after day making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. They were simply a placeholder until the perfect sacrifice came. But when Jesus made the perfect sacrifice once and for all, the ultimate, complete, and final sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. His work of salvation is complete. He cried from the cross, It is finished. All that was necessary for salvation was now achieved. And now Christ sat down at the right hand of God Himself. Why? Because He is God. Who is worthy to be seated on the throne of God? Only God. But Jesus... He is seated on the throne because He is Lord of all. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Brothers and sisters, do you see Jesus for who He is? 
Do you see Him as the Scriptures portray Him? He is far superior to the prophets. He is far superior to the angels. He is far superior, in fact, to everything else. We see in verse 4 that the author of Hebrews makes mention of the angels, and that he fleshes out there in the rest of chapter 1. But the rest of the book itself is a declaration that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Jesus is more excellent than everything. God has spoken, and He has spoken ultimately, perfectly, completely through His Son, Jesus Christ. And praise the Son, He is supreme over all. He is the heir of all things, the creator of all things. He upholds all things. He's the image of God, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the perfect sacrifice for sins, and He is Lord of all seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. Do you know Him? We often speak of Jesus as being God's prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Jesus is God's final word. As priest, Jesus made purification for sins. And as king, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, worship the Son. He's the heir of all things and the heir of the name. Look there in verse 4 as we conclude. What name? The name of the Son. That's what chapter 1 makes clear. God has spoken to us by one whose very character and nature is that of Son. Jesus is God's Son. God's only Son. God's beloved Son, the Son who makes it possible for us to be sons and daughters of God. That's who Jesus is. Do you know Him? Not just do you know about Him, but do you know Him personally? Do you know the Father through the Son today? May we worship Christ the Son. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to You in awe of Your glory, that You have spoken, and that You have spoken perfectly through Your Son, and we have seen the glories of Your Son right here in this text. So as we respond to You, Lord, may we better obey, and may we more faithfully love You. May we more fervently desire to walk with Christ. Lord, for all who are here who don't know Christ as Savior, may they repent today and draw near to You, the Father, through Christ the Son. May each of us leave here loving Jesus more than we did when we came in. It's in Christ's name we pray.